Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. This time, in fact, we're going to be turning the tables, and it's my daughter, Charlotte, who's going to ask me some of the same questions I've been asking my guests. Yes. So to start with, I'm just going to read out the biography that is at the front of your upcoming book, A Quest for Wisdom, which is published on the 25th of March by Aeon Books. David Lorimer is a writer, poet, lecturer and editor who is a founder of Character Education Scotland, programme director of the Scientific and Medical Network and former president of Recon Trust and the Swedenborg Society. Originally a merchant banker, then a teacher of philosophy and modern languages at Winchester College, he's the author and editor of over a dozen books, most recently The Protein Crunch with Jason Drew and A New Renaissance, edited with Oliver Robinson. He has edited three books about Ben Seduno, Profit for Our Times, The Circle of Sacred Dance and Gems of Love, which is a translation of his prayers and formulas into English. He is a founding member of the International Futures Forum and was an editor of its digest, Omnipedia, Thinking for Tomorrow. He was also a trustee of the St Andrews Prize for the Environment and a Churchill Fellow. His book on the ideas and work of the Prince of Wales, Radical Prince, has been translated into Dutch, Spanish and French. He is the originator of the Inspiring Purpose Values poster programmes, which have reached over 300,000 young people. The first question that I would like to ask today is, can you tell us about a shaping moment that influenced your choice of work? Yes. One was when I read Swedenborg first, and this was my last year at university. And I had this, this biography by a man called Trowbridge, and it had been lying on my desk for quite some weeks. And one evening I stayed in and I read it, and I, it was just a revelation reading about this man who was a scientist, a philosopher, a geologist, a member of parliament. And and then he'd also, in his mid-50s, his whole inner life opened up and he started writing just as rationally about the spiritual world, about spiritual principles. And this was a complete revelation. So subsequently I read a lot of Swedenborg and I became member of the council and eventually president of the Swedenborg Society. So that was one very important moment. What was the motivation for reading that book in the first place? Was it the philosophy course that you'd taken at St Andrews? No, it wasn't, in fact. No, it was uh, the fact that I'd read a poem by Baudelaire called Correspondences. And in the notes in the back, it referred to Swedenborg. And I I was very keen on French poetry while I was uh, studying French at St Andrews University. So it was a link in the chain then, one led to another. It was exactly that, exactly that. Can you tell me about another shaping moment? Yes, then another very important moment. I'd been working in a merchant bank for a couple of years, between 1974 and 1976, and I was looking to escape from this. And so I wrote to Patrick Forbes, who was the managing director of Moy de Chandon in London, as while I was a student at an earlier stage, I'd worked as a guide showing people around the champagne cellars. And I thought maybe they've got an opening Um, for September 76 and I'll be able to go back there and then that will begin all my year of reading which was so formative and so I remember the day when I got the letter saying somebody had just put dropped out and so they'd love to have me and I can still see that letter I still have a copy of it and I resigned from the bank the next day. That really was a pivotal 
moment. I'm curious, what came first, the champagne or the books? Did you want to go back to to France to be with the people and work there, or did you want to go there because you knew it would enable you to read, or both? Well, a bit of both. I needed to go and spend some time in France and Germany in order to polish up my languages because I was planning to become a language teacher. So I needed to go abroad anyway. And so the question was where I was going to go and how I was going to do this. So it was a stepping stone. It was a stepping stone. And what I did was I packed up four boxes of books, which I then read. And this was a completely shaping year for me because I, I took the time to read very, very widely and quite deeply. The way that my life has unfolded since then, you know, very much comes from that year that mm. I spent. I'm going to ask you a bit more about the books that you chose, but um, firstly, how did you land on your decision to move from banking into teaching? It was a feeling of being um, a square peg in a round hole or the other way around. That, um, But I also had this sense that and it, it just wasn't the right thing for me to be doing um, because a, another book that I'd read, and I discussed this with a person we called our honorary grandmother, Evelyn Hayward, called Testimony of Light by Helen Greaves. And in it, it described that each of us has a blueprint um, for our lives uh, and that um, if we're going to stay on track, then we need to be able to follow this blueprint. So that was a very, very important thing. And so I felt that my blueprint somehow uh, involved taking this, this year for reading and then going into teaching and then you know, things unfolded from there. How old were you when you read Testimony of Light? 22. It, was, it would have been shortly after I started work at Morgan Grenville. Mm. And so before you read that book, had you thought of souls and spirituality and that inner presence within each person what what were your thoughts and relationship to that previously yes no i i was already tuned into the importance of the spiritual life and, and the inner life and so this this was something that i was exploring in more detail i read on the train um, when i was commuting um, so i was getting through a couple of books a week just just like that and what about when you were growing up as a child kind of how did you relate to church and nature and spirituality well, my mother, your, your grandmother, was sensitive this way, and she had a number of experiences which were verifiable in some sense. And that, so that helped me understand that these things happened and they were significant and important. So when I started um, reading other people's experiences and also the experiences of Swedenborg, it created a pattern where I could see that these inner experiences and then leading on to the near-death experience were extremely significant if one was going to understand the deeper aspect of life. So on um, the people who influenced you, would that honorary grandmother be one of your mentors? Yes, I hadn't really thought of it, but yes, she was. And she, she said a number of memorable things. One was um, an excuse implies an apology. Another one was the, when she, she, she talked about a sense of humour as a sense of proportion. Um, and really she, had a, she had a great sense of humour. She was a very warm person, and, and very curious and open-minded. And I, I, I used to go and spend weekends with her down in Midhurst in a little cottage. Where's Midhurst? Sussex. Okay. Mm. And who else would you add to that list of mentors and teachers? Well, there were two other people at that stage. One was my poetry tutor, Ian Higgins, uh, who gave me this love of Baudelaire and all the 19th century, and indeed the 20th, 20th century French poets as well. So they, that was a highlight of my university studies. Uh, and I still keep up with him from time to time. Um, 
And then the other was when I came to London and I was wondering about going into the church and I'd already was on the council of the Swedenborg Society and I was advised to go and see a man called Norman Coburn. And Norman had been a canon at St. Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh and he'd done his PhD at Edinburgh University. And then he'd become secretary of the Bible Society and he had an enormous library. And he very kindly gave me large sections of his library, including Jung and Toynbee and J.G. Fraser and the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, which I still have in my library. And I remember once I asked him, what did he think were the most important things in life? And he didn't take very long to reply, love and freedom. I know I've forgotten that, and I think he's probably right. Yeah, and those words definitely mean a lot to you. I remember just, well, I think the, the five words of Peter Dunoff as well. Can you remind Love, us of those? wisdom, truth, justice, and goodness. Those are the five fundamental principles of Peter Dunoff, who's been the great guide, spiritual guide for me in my life. Mm. How did you come across his work? And can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yes, uh, it was 1985, and, and I was um, subscribing to... Element Books Catalogue, which has a huge catalogue of spiritual books. And, and I found this book called Cosmic Moral Laws by a man called Omram Mikhail Ivanov. And I thought, well, that looks an interesting book. And so I bought it. And then I took it on holiday, went to Crete with Willie, my brother. And that was one of the books that I read. And it made a lot of sense to me. It had made, made a deep impression. And so when I got back, I just ordered his complete works. And, and then you taught and, yourself and Bulgarian in order to read it. That was a little later stage, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the connection is that, that Ivanov was taught by, by this Bulgarian sage called Peter Dunov, and chapter two of the first volume talks about him, and I immediately recognised him, and also the look in his eyes, as someone who really knew deeply and who was one of the great spiritual masters the last 1,000 years. Mm. So going back to those four boxes of books, what were in them? And if you were pulling out one book, is there one that shapes your life more than others? That's a very interesting question. The, the contents of the four boxes go back to probably one of the key books that I read, which is Colin Wilson's Outsider, um, which I know you've read as well. And this had a huge influence on me, not only because it connected up with my studies of French literature and existentialism, but also because it put me onto a whole lot of authors I hadn't read. And, and so I then created a reading list, effectively, and I bought a large number of these books, including some very obscure ones that he mentioned, like T. E. Lawrence's Letters and, and T. E. Hume's Speculations. I have that in my library. I find it in a second-hand bookshop. Um, but also it put me onto some people like Arnold Toynbee, Jakob Burma, or Spengler, I don't know whether there's a single book of what, what I was reading. Well, maybe the it's The Outsider then, because that the was Outsider The Outsider is the key book, mm. yes. But, and, and I did meet Colin Wilson um, at a later stage. I went down to his house in Cornwall, and I spent the night there, and we had a very good evening. He gave me what, two or three of his books that I didn't already have. And then he also said, when my guests, I have guests here, I ask them if they can find any shelf or any space for another bookshelf, um, I'll give them £10. And he had something <laughs> like 25,000 books. Oh and there was goodness. not a space in anywhere in his house or his garage or his outhouse, which is not already full of books. 
So for anyone who hasn't read it, can you explain a little bit more about The Outsider? And and he was only 25 when he when it was published, I think, so even younger when he wrote it. Exactly. And, and in that sense, it's an extraordinary book. The concept of The Outsider is somebody who feels a bit alienated from society and who doesn't really fit in. And, and so Albert Camus' book was translated, L'Etranger was translated as The Outsider in English. But this is more general. It looks at outsiders throughout literature. And art and dancing. And art and dance, exactly. There, there are all, all sorts of different people. And so he published it in 1956 when he was 25. And part of the legend was that he wrote it in, in the British Library and he slept out on Hampstead Heath. And it immediately became incredibly famous. And so he became part of a group of the angry young men, people who wanted a new society new ideas. And then his second book, Religion and the Rebel, which I think actually is even more important or just as important, is panned by the critics. I think they were compensating for giving him such good reviews the first time round. And then I read a lot of Wilson's books, The Occult, other huge books that he he wrote. Um, But I haven't read so much recently, except that I happen to have got some recollections of his friends that I just read a couple of weeks ago. What was the uh, impression of his friends? He had a wide circle of friends, and he, he influenced and helped a lot of writers. And in fact, that included me, because um, when I wrote my first book, Survival, it was sent by the publishers, Routledge and Keegan Paul, to Colin Wilson as a reader. And he thought it was going to be a classic in its field. And so my first book, Survival, was actually published on the strength of Colin Wilson's recommendation. And is that how the meeting came about? It is. Yes, exactly. What did it feel like to meet him? Well, he was a very kind, soft-spoken man, but of course phenomenally intelligent. And so it was it was hard to keep up with the conversation. One of the books he gave me was his book on Reich, um, which I'm not sure I've ever read, but I remember his signature was all over the page. It was a kind of big, extravagant signature. Uh, and then I get I took I took him a bottle of Mercure Burgundy, 1977. I remember the wine. And it wasn't very long before that was finished and we were on to the next bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful evening. It was. Are there any other books that you would like to highlight as being completely life-shifting? Well, as you know, I read and review more than 150 books a year. So it's very difficult for me to to pull out individual books would Man's Search for Meaning be one of them? Yes, that would be actually. Yes, that's that was a, that was the critical book which I've read um, multiple times and I gave it to my uncle Hugh Lorimer the sculptor and he hadn't read it and he was already in his 70s and he was very impressed by it as well. What it's about for those who are not familiar with it's, it draws on Viktor Frankl's time in Auschwitz concentration camp and uh, how he managed through an inner sense of orientation to love uh, to maintain his strength attitude and actually get through the experience. He noticed that people who lacked this kind of resilience and who felt that they might be out by a certain date, they would often die when it was apparent that they weren't going to get out. And he had this vision of his wife um, as a kind of transcendent love connection that really kind of kept him going, I think, in, in these horrendous circumstances. And so he felt that as a result of that, that meaning was absolutely central in human life. The fact that our scientific story tells us that life is an accident and completely meaningless doesn't help the mental health 
of people in modern life, mm. especially young people. Purpose is absolutely critical. Meaning and purpose, exactly. And I think he quoted Nietzsche on that. He, he who has a why can bear almost any how. Which yes. is a wonderful quote. Yes, it's a wonderful quote. And actually, I was speaking to a friend of mine, Lucy, recently about more recollections from Auschwitz survivors. And the way that this woman was remembering it was that the people who only thought about themselves, they didn't make it through. The people who were constantly thinking of others and banding together into friendship groups and even sharing the very little food that they had, they were the ones who made it through. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I can absolutely believe that. Um, so I think it's meaning, but it's also connection. 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 We're all we're all looking for both of these meaning and connection. That's mm. very fundamental, I think. So when it comes to consciousness, what is your understanding of that word, and how have all these books and people and poems and have converged into that understanding? Well, that brings me back to another shaping moment, as it were, which was when I spent the whole day at a friend's flat in London reading Life After Life by Raymond Moody. I read it in, in, in a sitting, as it were. I didn't go out. I just sat down. I read it. And I immediately realized that the near-death experience was something incredibly important for our culture because it, it interfaced with, with science and neuroscience, with philosophy, with psychology, with parapsychology, um, anthropology even, across a range of, of disciplines and implications. Uh, and it pointed towards um, consciousness being more than just the activity, the physical activity of the brain. And that was an important step. And, and it was one that was consistent with Swedenborg, because I'd already, I was already familiar with Swedenborg's work from having read it a couple of years before. That contextualized it for me. The word consciousness, of course, is used in many different ways by many different people. And I think it's quite helpful that it's to, to have a broad understanding of it um, but without becoming too technical. Um, but the fundamental question is, is what we know to be consciousness dependent on the brain or not? Or is the brain a kind of transceiver or filter um, through which consciousness is shaped? And we know that from you know, psychology of perception, that, that the, how we perceive the world is a function of our, our senses and our brain. But is there more to it than that? And that's, of course, very fundamental, because if there is a larger context for life where we continue in some sense, or we have a multiple episodes of life, and these, all these consciousnesses, these minds are connected, and then that's a very different picture of the world and understanding to, to being born into an accidental universe and then death being the end, death being extinction. How does consciousness and the soul relate to each other? Well, that's another <clears throat> interesting question because the soul um, is a traditional concept in Western philosophy and theology, indeed around the world. And what modern psychology has more or less got rid of the word, they use self uh, instead, so even or even books which say from soul um, to self, and and the self is obviously not the same. The soul is, has a an immortal, transcendental element to it, um, which the self does not necessarily have. So my understanding of this is that the soul is is the deeper aspect of ourselves. The personality is is something more conditioned and, and related to the body, and the spirit 
um, is the the one life and consciousness and mind that we all share. So this, so for me, the word spirit is much more universal, and the soul is an individualization of the spirit, mm. if that makes sense. Sort of. Is it energy? I think it's associated with energy, yes. Um, but it, again, in a broad sense, that's not the narrow physics definition. And so that when we die, the life force, the energy, the consciousness, the awareness goes, and the body is left as something as an inert system that obviously degrades, mm. normally degrades, unless you're a saint. <laughs> <laughs> and how does this understanding of consciousness influence the way that you live your life each day? Well, for me, um, one, of the, one of the books I wrote, which is now called Resonant Mind, it used to be called Hole in One, it was about the life review. Um, and this is, a, I think, an important process. But what, what it implies for me is that we are microcosms of the one universal mind. There is only one mind. There is one fundamental mind that expresses itself through every human being, in fact, but through the whole of life. Uh, and so if your premise is a oneness of mind, the universality of mind, and we, then, then we are, in a sense, each other. And, and so from this oneness of mind and the experience, the deep experience of the oneness of mind in, in what's called mystical experience, and I deduce that the golden rule, that we should therefore treat others as we'd like to be treated, because in the life review, uh, we will experience all these events but from the point of view of the other people who are affected by them. Um, and so each event in that sense has multiple dimensions that corresponding to the people who are experiencing the event. But we don't realise that um, when we're going through normal life. We just get our own point of view on the whole. Unless we're incredibly empathetic. If somebody who has deep empathy, then they can actually feel what it's like to be somebody else. And sometimes this happens, people with um, people who are very closely bonded. They, they actually feel what's going on to their twin, for instance, at a distance. And because of this you know, mysterious connection, which I think we ought to try to understand, because I think it has huge implications for how deeply connected we are with each other. And would that come under consciousness, that yes. telepathic connection? Yes. There I use the phrase universal mind, because the, that's a more traditional one. Um, where you've got a macrocosm of the universal mind and a microcosm, um, or a sort of hologram, if you like, which is us. Uh, and so each of us is intrinsically that same mind, which is why we need to be aware of that. The thesis of, of that book is that if everybody realised that they, we are each other, uh, then they would treat each other with a great deal more kindness. Mm. And, and you can't commit atrocities against somebody without that coming back eventually. And I think that would be, if people really realised that, the world would be a different place. And in a practical sense, how does everything that you know and understand influence your choices of how you spend your days? One of the roles I play is, is as a kind of curator of information, because I read a lot, and I, I try to convey the essence of these books that I read in, in the reviews I write for Paradigm Explorer, which I've been editing for over 100 issues. I'm all the time trying to refine my understanding of these different fields um, and then trying to pass that on um, in as best I can to other people. 
And how about the way that you relate to nature? Well, that means a huge amount to me. I, I try to understand and, and live through the cycles of nature. I write poetry about this. And, and so at the moment we're in the autumn. It's a time of shedding. It's a time of clear days like today. And, and so I love the light. And that really, I, feel, I feel really nourished by the light. And I'm nourished by, by the water. You know, we go swimming in the, in the river at uh, every time of year, which is very bracing at this, at this particular period. And then also the time I've spent in the Rila Mountains in Bulgaria um, is extraordinary so far as getting that sense of closeness to nature, which Peter Dunoff said was very, very important. Mm. So labels can be very limiting, but I wonder, is there a particular word that you would use to describe yourself in some ways that someone would describe themselves as a Muslim or a Christian? Or is there a word that you feel resonates with you and, and which word would you choose? Yes, I'm, I'm really a Gnostic, which is a form of heretic in so far as Orthodox Christianity is concerned. The Gnostic movement was early Christianity, um, which put the emphasis on inner knowing, um, not on belief, and not on the institution. So the inner knowing was an individual knowing, um, whereby people came to the realisation that they were in fact the universal mind, that they were, they were an expression of this oneness which they were experiencing. They weren't separate from it, we call it non-duality um, these days. And, and so experiencing Gnosis um, is experiencing your oneness with the whole. And, and again, I think that's hugely important because then ethically yeah, you treat people as if they are also one with the whole. Mm. And you treat nature as if this is also part one with the whole. So we need, we need to arrive at a much more harmonious relationship with nature, in my view, than we have. We have a controlling mastery type of science and technology at the moment and we're always trying to control and master things where I feel we are part of nature we are nature and so we should be trying to understand as Victor Schauberger who was a visionary forester said he said we have to understand and copy kapieren in, in German and, and kopieren which is to copy and, and I feel that passionately that we need to understand and cooperate and collaborate and be in harmony with nature like the indigenous people Absolutely. Is there a quote that you live by? I'm sure there are many, many, and this is a very difficult question, but you have asked it to all of your guests. So. I have indeed. I have indeed. Well, I have in my hand here a little book called Le Petit Philosophe de Poche, which I bought in July 1971 in Epernay when I was in France. And I marked, I marked it up, and I've got about a huge number of references at the back here in old, old fountain pen. But when I was thinking about this, one of the important quotes for me was from Earl Nightingale. In fact, it was put down by a pupil in my Inspiring Purpose educational program. And it was this, that our attitude to life determines life's attitude to us. And there's a little story that goes with it, which is there's a person coming into a village and they meet, meet a person, the villager, and ask the villager, what are people like in this village? The response was, well, what were they like in the last village? And if you say, well, they were very friendly, then they're going to be very friendly here. 
But if you say, well, they weren't very nice, then the, the, the villager will say to you, well, I think you'll find it's much the same here. And, and so that's an illustration of this idea that, that our attitude to life reflects life's attitude towards us. So it's the relationship to, in the inner and the outer. And then related to this is Sir John Templeton, you know, when he said that we need to have an attitude of gratitude. My experience is that gratitude is enormously important in life, and that one's life is immeasurably enriched by being grateful for everything, not just the good things, but also the things that are difficult. But often these are the, the very experiences we learn most from. So the last question is, have you got any advice that you would give to your younger self? And I'm going to be specific on this. The self who is going off with his four boxes of books and his cassette tapes, what would you say to him? Well, I would say bravo. I <laughs> know <laughs> that was the right thing to do. Um, but uh, no, because I had this sense of, and I was following my blueprint by giving up the bank and by orienting myself towards education. But I would, I would have one specific piece of advice, which I now understand more deeply than I did at the time, which is to trust in life's unfolding process. Because however difficult things are in the short term, life has a way of unfolding perfectly once you look back and understand the patterns that were coming into being.